0: Man, that makes you feel good, right? Hey, if, any, if I was any better, I'd have to be twins. I mean, it feels good to be here today. Uh, the temperature is getting cooler. I tell you, people are able to get out their sweaters a little bit now and to wear that. The leaves are falling. Turkey Day is just around the corner, even though you're only going to be able to celebrate it by yourself. You know, but hey, that's all right. That's more turkey for you. That's going to be good. And hey, just a lot of, hey, a lot of good things are going on. I know we hear about a lot of negativity, a lot of things that uh, get us down, but there are so many good things that are taking place uh, in our life, in our world, and this is one of those opportunities where we have to be together. We recognize that uh, the numbers for COVID cases are continuing to rise, and we continue to encourage everyone to be wise in the way that you are uh, interacting and the things that you are doing to take care of your health, and uh, we are trying to do the best that we can here as well with the different um, procedures that we have in place and protocols, and we thank everyone for uh, your cooperation with that and for your kindness and for the way that you're looking out, not only for yourself, but also for those who are around you. you know, we've been talking about heaven now for, believe it or not, this is uh, week number 10, and we're about to wrap things up. We're in the home stretch. We're wrapping things up today and tomorrow, and it's been a, for me, it's been a very uplifting time to be able to talk about the home for our soul. As we've been looking at this idea of heaven, talking about it in ways that maybe we're not used to talking about it and exploring things that maybe we have never explored before. I had someone that went out last week saying, all right, you've given me a lot of stuff that I need to go home and think about and to chew on, and that's great. That's what we want to do. We want to be able to uh, be challenged when it comes to looking into scripture, and we want to be able to further our understanding, even though we understand that, you know what, there's a lot of things we just do not, we don't know. Because everybody has questions about heaven. You talk about heaven, and people have got questions. They want to know. It's like, okay, well, who's going to be there? And what's it going to be like? And, and what are we going to do? But the big question that everybody has is, what about my pets? Right? I mean, that's what we're really concerned about. Uh, we want to know about our pets. We want to know about the dogs and the cats. And, of course, you know, many of you have seen the movie, All Dogs Go to Heaven. Notice they've never made a movie like that about cats. There is a reason, I believe. And uh, if you don't believe me, if you're a cat lover out there and, and you don't believe me that there should be some serious concerns in your heart about your cat, I want you to consider the excerpts from the following dog and cat diaries as, as proof. All right, first for the dog. Let, let's, let's hear the dog. Now, of, of course that little guy goes to heaven, right? I mean, look at that. Here's his, here's his excerpt from his diary. 8 a.m. Oh boy, dog food, my favorite. 9AM! Oh Boy, a car ride, my favorite. 10AM! Oh Boy, a walk, my favorite. 11AM! Car ride, my favorite. 12 noon. Oh Boy! Dog food, my favorite. 1PM! Oh Boy, the kids, my favorite. 2PM! Oh Boy, the Yard, my favorite. 4PM! Oh Boy, the kids again, my favorite. 5PM! Oh Boy, dog food, my favorite. 6 p.m., oh boy, playing ball, my favorite. 8 p.m., oh boy, sleeping in my master's bed, my favorite. I mean, that guy's gonna go to heaven. You can just tell, right? Now here's the cat's diary. Day 983 of my captivity. My captors continue to taunt me with bizarre little dangling objects. They dine lavishly on fresh meat while I'm forced to eat dried cereal. The only thing that keeps me going is my hope of escape and the mild satisfaction of ruining the occasional piece of furniture. Yesterday, my attempt to kill my captors by weaving around their feet while walking almost succeeded. I must try this at the top of the stairs. In an attempt to repulse my captors, I once again induced myself to vomit on their favorite chair must try this on my bed and theirs. Today, in an attempt to make them aware of what I'm capable of and to strike fear in their hearts, I decapitated a mouse and brought them the headless body. However, they they merely made condescending comments about what a good little hunter I am. This is not working according to plan. When they gathered with a group of their accomplices, I was placed in solitary confinement. However, I could hear the noise and smell the food. But more importantly, I overheard that my confinement was due to my power to induce allergies. Must learn what this is and how to use it to my advantage. I am convinced that the other prisoners here are all flunkies and snitches. The dog, their favorite, receives special privileges. He's regularly released and he seems to come back willing. He's not right in the head. I'm confident the bird must be an informant. I observe him communicate with the guards regularly. I'm certain that he reports my every move. My captors have arranged protective custody for him in an elevated cell. So he is safe, for now. (laughs) Guys, I've got my concerns for the cats, I'm just telling you, I've just got my concerns. For you cat lovers out there, man. You know, um, not saying that's how it's going to be. I'm just saying, watch yourself tonight while you sleep. That's all. Okay? You know, I do want us to consider today some important questions that emerge from the puzzlings that we have about heaven. Now, look, it's important for us to remember that the Bible is not an encyclopedia, right? You don't go to the Bible, you don't open it up, and you turn to the H's to find all about heaven. That would be great if that was the case, that there was just a, a book that was there in your Bible and it said heaven and everything that you wanted to know and all the questions that you had could be answered, but it's not the case. It's also not the case that the Bible is, is some doctoral thesis that addresses just one or two specific questions. The Bible is a collection of writings about humanity's relationship with the God of creation. And now while these writings were not written directly to us, They were written for us, but they're not written to address every theological question that we have. I like a quote from Rachel Held Evans. She has this in her book, Inspired, and she said that to demand that the Bible meet our demands is to put ourselves and our interests, get this, at the center of the story. Which is one of the first traps, she says, we must learn to avoid if we are to engage the Bible with integrity and care. You know, we might wish that the Bible would address all the questions that we have about what happens when this life is over, but oftentimes to do that and to go to Scripture and to try to force-feed ourselves with something and to make it fit what we want or try to find the answer that we desperately desire, oftentimes what we end up doing, we are putting ourselves into the center of the story instead of having God be the one that is the center. But what we've tried to do over the last 10 weeks is to gain comfort and hope from the, the small morsels that are found in Scripture. And we've been chewing on those. And, and I know that some of the things that I've talked about have uh, maybe been, again, the first time you've ever heard it. And you thought, man, I, I never really looked at it this way. And, and maybe as we've been going through this, you're like, hey, I've got all this down, Pat. Let's just move on. Hey, we've got two more weeks. Hang in there with me. And uh, we're going to wrap this up. But I hope you have been enjoying as we've been looking at this. Now look, in previous lessons, we addressed some questions already. Uh, We've already addressed the fact that heaven is not the default destination for everybody. Universalism is the idea that everyone who has ever lived will end up in heaven. And, And let's be honest, that is a comforting thought, right? I mean, that makes us feel good and it's very satisfying, but it does not find agreement specifically with the teachings of Jesus. During his Sermon on the Mount, he reminded his listeners that they had the choice of of two different destinies. He said, wide is the gate. Wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many are going to go through that. But narrow is the gate that leads to eternal life, but only few there are going to be who find it. So heaven is not our default destination, but our eternal destiny is not something that Jesus wants us to be anxious over. I love John chapter 14 where Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me because in my father's house, man, there are many rooms. And he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I'll receive you unto myself that where I am, well, there you can be also. And then he added this. He said, you know the way to the place that I'm going. You see, friends, we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt what our eternal future holds. And that's good news. That's good news. We don't need to be anxious and and, and worried and wondering. At the end of your Bible, there's a letter written by the Apostle John. And in that letter, he begins to wrap things up. After he's been encouraging Christians, he wraps it up in chapter 5, and he says this. God has given us, writing to believers in Jesus, eternal life. And this life is in his Son, Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you, to those of you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. The idea that we cannot know what lies ahead, that we cannot know the relationship that we have with God, that we have to go into our death hoping and wondering what is going to happen is not something that is found in Scripture. It is something that the devil has whispered into our ears in order to try to discourage young and aged saints. Because heaven will welcome all who trust Jesus. Jesus' view of life after death was always consistent. He never wavered. He made it clear that our eternal destiny hinges on the relationship that we have with him. And so he tells us in John chapter 6, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up in the last day. It then says in chapter 14, and verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father except through me. See, now Jesus is clear that good enough is never going to be good enough. You can't be good enough in order to make it to heaven. You see, the great question on that final day is not going to be, how much did you sin? And then we're going to rank sins, and we're going to say, all right, those of you that just had little bitty sins are going to be over here, and those of you that had medium sins are going to be over here, and all you cat lovers are going to be over here. That's not how it's going to be. Instead, the question is, how much did you trust God's answer for your sin? Did you trust Jesus? You see that's the most important question, but I know that that heaven's call elicits within us some some very personal and delicate wonderings so so let's consider a couple of these what what happens? What happens when a person dies? now that's a question that we don't often like to talk about. We often try to skirt the subject, but it's one that that Christians have been called to look at from a very positive viewpoint since the beginning. Now, this is going to be a little bit involved, but allow me a few minutes to explain what I see in Scripture here. In the Old Testament, when you read through that, you're going to find that that there is the abode of the dead known as Sheol. Now, many translations simply use the word grave, all right? But Sheol was understood to be the immediate dwelling place of the dead, and it's used in places all throughout the Old Testament. One of the most famous, I suppose, if it, if you can use that word, is from Psalm 139. Many of you have heard this passage before where David asked, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? He says, if I go up to heaven, well, you are there, but if I make my bed in Sheol. Now, maybe your Bible says grave or it says the depths. The word there, sheol, doesn't mean the dirt that a body is put in. It means what comes next after death. Now, And that's why we need to understand that even though sheol has oftentimes been translated as grave, it it is not that grave that we go to visit of our loved ones. It is not that place where the body rests. It's not the hole in the ground. Sheol is used to refer to what is beyond the grave. And that's in the Old Testament. Now, the Greek term that is used for that same concept in your New Testament is Hades. We're a little bit more familiar with that word, but don't actually understand perhaps what it actually means. Because Hades is not synonymous with, nor should it be translated as hell, even though that's how a lot of people have often understood it. See, in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, Jesus said that he will build his church, you've heard this before, and the gates of... Ah, you don't know what to say, do you? You're like, uh uh-oh, what do I say here? Because if you grew up with King James, you learn, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But the word that is actually there is the word Hades. Jesus is foreshadowing how that not even death, his death, and perhaps by extension even ours, would not be able to dilute the power of the kingdom of God. You see, the term Sheol in the Old Testament, and then by extension, Hades in the New Testament, never carried the idea of punishment with it. So both Sheol and Hades were to be understood as the place where the dead went to await their future. Now, by the time that Jesus came on the scene, it had come to be believed that Sheol was divided up into kind of two different areas. And a lot of this thinking had to do with Greek philosophers and influence. And there's not a whole lot of support within Scripture for this, even though there are some times where there are allusions to perhaps this idea. One of those realms within Hades was called paradise. It was considered to be the place of conscious bliss for the righteous. The wicked had another place where they would wait called Tartarus. Now, some people feel that Jesus alluded to this and maybe reinforced this understanding when he told the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. Remember that story where the rich man dies and it says that he is in Hades and you have the beggar Lazarus who dies and is carried off, it says, to Abraham's bosom and it looks like there's two different areas? And I think, though, as we look closer to the context of the story, there's actually a different point that Jesus is trying to get to. But at least from just a glance, it appears that perhaps there were these two different areas that at least his listeners were familiar with. And you might also remember how Jesus told the thief who hung beside him on the cross that today you will be with me, where? In paradise, right? Now, look, I've given this a good bit of thought, but it's still a work in progress. And again, I do not have all the answers. In the scriptures that speak to what happens after death, there's only a few of them, and many can be difficult to understand. But I can kind of share with you how I frame this in my mind. What I see pictured in scripture is that Sheol, or or Hades, whichever one you want to call it, that abode of the dead, and heaven are not the same place. Jesus was not in heaven three days between his crucifixion and his resurrection. Because you might remember the encounter that he has after the resurrection with Mary. It's found in John chapter 20, and she is attempting to, to hold on to him, to cling to him after she realizes, well, this is my Savior. And he told her, look, do not hold on to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. But after his ascension, there is a shift in the way that the writers of the Bible approach death. The letter of Hebrews tells us that before the death of Jesus, before that sacrifice for, for our sins, that there was this time of forbearance of sins and a time of forgiveness. And apparently the saints of the Old Testament could not enjoy... Heaven and live in God's presence until their sin was atoned for. Now they were in a place of eternal bliss, paradise perhaps, but not yet in the actual presence of God. But at the triumphal moment of Jesus' resurrection, he became, we are told, the victor over death and he triumphed and became the owner over Hades. And it's why at the beginning of John's revelation, Jesus is speaking to John and he says, I am the living one, I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. You see, when Jesus conquered death, I believe that he earned the right to open the door to Sheol, to to Hades, to that abode of the dead. And when he did this, he released the righteous souls who had been waiting there. So that we find after Jesus' ascension from that point on, The ideas of paradise and heaven reference an after-death existence in which God and believers are restored to a perfect fellowship that existed before there was ever sin in this world. And you can look at also Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7 that, that presents this image as well. Within this existence or within this state of being, it appears that the righteous dead are held firmly within the conscious love of God and the conscious presence of Jesus Christ. So, okay, so, so what does all that mean? All right, well, here's what I think happens when someone that we know and love dies in the Lord. When such a person dies, I believe that their spirit immediately goes to the current heaven, as Paul put it in Philippians one twenty three, to be with Christ. Just like in Acts 7, when Stephen was being stoned to death, he saw Jesus standing there in heaven and... He prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees, it says. He cried out, Lord, don't hold this sin against the people. And when he had said this, it says he fell asleep, referring to his death. Now look, when, when that day comes for me, whenever that is, it will be the best day that I have ever lived. But get this, it's not going to be the best day that I will ever live. Because that's going to happen when Jesus returns and I receive that glorified body that we've already spoken of, that the writers in the New Testament keep pushing the Christians toward. Because remember, the Christian's ultimate hope is not to go to heaven, some pie in the sky when I die by and by, but to be bodily raised and transformed into the glorious likeness of Jesus Christ. Now look, another view on this subject is that since the Bible speaks of death in the terms of sleep, just like it did in Acts chapter 7. There's this idea that perhaps when we die, we are placed by God in a state of unconsciousness until the resurrection. So just like we were unconscious during the night and had no idea what our cat was doing while we were sleeping, well, our spirits also are unconscious and then awaken at the next appearing of Jesus. Now, if this is the case, then we will sense that no time has passed between our death and then the time of resurrection is going to see as being immediate. But when the Bible refers, though, to having fallen asleep at our death, I, I kind of have come to the conclusion that it refers more to how our bodies sleep while the spirit then departs and returns to God for a conscious existence in the current and present heaven. And the reason I say this is because the idea, some people call this soul sleep, The idea of the sleeping soul fails to reconcile with some scriptures that clearly seem to imply that there is this waiting time between the person's death and the return of Jesus. Consider Revelation chapter 6. John observed the following. He said, I saw under the altar the souls of all who had been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful in their testimony. They shouted to the Lord and said, O oh, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what has been done to us? Now notice that it says that John saw the souls of the martyrs. And that these martyred saints, they were not asleep. And while they're, they're in this present state that is secured, their future victory is assured, but they are clearly conscious and they are eagerly anticipating a fuller vindication. They are in heaven, but they're waiting for something more. Now look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 14. And I want you to see how Paul plays out this moment of resurrection. And I want you to see if you can catch the puzzling reference of how we can be in two places at once. He says, for since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. Did you see how the righteous dead are spoken of as returning with Jesus and coming back with him? You keep reading to verse 15. He says, we tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. So you see, I think what happens is that the spirits that are now with Christ in heaven are going to return with Christ as he makes his triumphal appearance at the end. Our spirits will then be reunited with our glorified bodies and in keeping with this great act of new creation, the earth is going to be purged with fire that we've talked about already and the curse is going to be lifted and then there's going to be this new heaven and this new earth. So at our death, I believe that our spirit immediately goes... to be with peace, or to be at peace with Christ. There's no layover anymore in Hades for the righteous. You're sitting there going, okay, but what about the unrighteous? Well, in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, we're told that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. See, it would appear that the unrighteous... Wait. In Hades? Perhaps. But wait for the return of Jesus and God's righteous judgment. So that perhaps it's not an either or. Maybe it's not a do you go into some type of unconscious sleep and then are immediately resurrected or do you immediately go to be with Christ, maybe it's not an either or, maybe it's a both and situation, all depending on the relationship that you have with God. Now look, I know this conversation can't help but lead us to ask this next question. I know it's a delicate one. But how can it be heaven if those I love are not there? If heaven is not our default destination, What will happen if when people I love are not there to enjoy God's salvation with me? Now look, I realize I cannot sufficiently answer this question. But let me offer you just a few thoughts. Perhaps the glory of the next life will simply overwhelm the memory of this life. Listen to a prophecy from Isaiah He said, see, I will create new heavens and a new earth. This is God speaking through the prophet. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Another thing to consider is that in the next world that we will grasp more perfectly an understanding of the justice of God and we will unflinchingly affirm all of God's judgment. And as we stand before God and marvel at his absolute holiness and and his purity, we will not find ourselves questioning why God could permit anyone to have to spend an existence in hell, but rather we'll be overwhelmed by grace and we will marvel. how, How could God allow anyone to be with him in heaven? And with this question, I also think what we're in danger of doing is what we do already here in this life we try to make heaven man-centered instead of God-centered way back at the beginning of this series we talked about how that there's coming a day when all eyes are going to be focused on the bridegroom will be focused on Jesus and how that will be where everyone's attention is and how the bridegroom Jesus will have his attention focused on on us And so perhaps the questions and concerns that we have about who will or who will not be there in heaven are are questions and concerns that come from just our, our human consciousness where we focus almost primarily on things that deal with our humanity and we're unable to understand those things greater that deal with God. Also, remember that God himself said that he would see to it that nobody in heaven grieves, that there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Now look, I know these questions are difficult, and and I don't pretend to have perfect answers, but I felt like if we're talking about heaven, we need to be able to discuss these things. But I do believe that there is an answer that is perfect. And that is to believe that God, the God of heaven, is, is bigger than any of our concerns. You know, near the beginning of World War II, King George VI of England ordered the evacuation of all of the English children living in London and had them sent to the countryside for safety. My family actually saw this, lived out on the television screen just last night as we watched the Chronicles of Narnia. And right there at the beginning of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there is this scene where the children are placed on a train. Leaving London, leaving mom behind in order to go where hopefully they would be safe from the the Nazi blitzkrieg. And, of course, the children are frightened at the thought of being separated from their parents and the anxiety that comes along with it. And if you've seen the movie The Chronicles of Narnia, you remember that all the parents are lined up there on the side of the train terminal, and they're waving, and there are tears in their eyes as the children there are looking out, crowding, trying to get out the window to see one more glimpse of their mother, their father, their grandmother, their grandfather. And the story is told that as one of those trains began to pull away from the station, there was a little girl. She was with her brother. And she began to cry. Her big brother put his arms around his sister and said, I don't know where we're going either, but the king knows, so don't worry. And I'm not trying to give you a cop-out. I'm not trying to slide by with some preacher answer for you this morning. But I do believe that that's the best answer that I can offer you when it comes to the questions about heaven. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Because whatever heaven is, the king knows. And whoever is meant to be there, the king knows. And whenever that time will be, the king knows. So whether I close my eyes only to have them reopen immediately at the resurrection, or I open my eyes after death and gaze on the face of my Savior, And await the new heaven and new earth. No matter what happens. I can be at peace. And I can rejoice. Because the king knows. You know, you have a lesson like this. And you really don't want to follow that up by some peppy song. We talked about death. Now, arise and shout, right? I mean, that just really doesn't go very well. So here's what we thought we would do this morning. We want to end this time that we have together in, in prayer. And we want you to know that even though we do not have our customary invitation song time during our COVID protocols, that that we do have multiple elders who are here, shepherds of this congregation, and, and they'll be glad to talk with you in our in our prayer room that is just off of our lobby as soon as we are done here. And they'll be glad to speak to you about any questions that you have about this life, the one to come to pray with you, to to talk with you about the relationship that you have with your God. You know, I look into this room and I see faces young and old and I know that many of you are seasoned veterans of the Christian walk. And you've been believers in Jesus for a long time. And, and you hold to your baptism as a reminder of what life after death can be. But I also know that with every season of life and with every article of, that we see in our news feed and all the things that we see on television, we can't help but be reminded that this life is short. And we can't help but have questions. So here's how we're going to end things this morning. We're just going to sit in silence for a few minutes and I would love for you to take your questions to God. And just right there where you're sitting, just just lay out your questions to him about the home for the soul, about what happens next, about your time here on this earth. Talk to him about loved ones who have already experienced what you are wondering will come. And allow his peace and comfort to sustain you. Then I'll close us all in prayer together. So let's talk to God. Father, who art in heaven, we thank you for your reminders, the way in which you have given us glimpses into what is to come. And Father, we praise you for the fact that death is not final. We rejoice in that, even though it brings us so many questions. And Lord, there are so many things that we wonder, so many many things that no matter how how many sermons we hear or, or how many devotionals we have, how many scriptures we dive into and how many new words we learn that the answers just don't seem to be satisfactory for us. Father, will you help each of us trust in the fact that you are good and that you do all things well. And Father, will you not allow us to be filled with anxiety because that's not what you want for us. You want us to know that there is a prepared place for us and that you are excited to welcome us into something that our minds right now can barely fathom. And Father, we rejoice today in the fact that you did not want to leave us to our own ways, to our own thoughts. Instead, Father, you decided to pursue us because our own thoughts and our own choices put a barrier between us because of the sin that is present in our life. But you said that that sin, that, that death and Hades would not stand in the way of your love for us. And so, Father, you sent your Son as a sacrifice and Father, we confess today our belief that that sacrifice, that that sacrifice was real, and that sacrifice is what brings grace to our life. Father, help us to hold to that grace. Help us to, to hold to that belief that Jesus is truly the answer to the only question that matters. May we hold to Jesus in this life, and Father, may we, may we hold to him at our death. And with all the questions that we have, Lord, with all the things that that bring us anxiety, will we be able to feel your comfort? Can we feel your peace? Help us to understand that, that even if we can't fully comprehend where we're going, that we can know to whom we are going. And allow that certainty, allow that knowledge to be what sustains us today and tomorrow and the weeks and the months and the years that are to come. Father, we praise you and we say thank you for giving us a home for our soul. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Friends, we are so excited that you've chosen to join us today. To be here and to be a part of of what we have shared together. And as I mentioned earlier, we recognize that the COVID numbers in town and around are increasing. Our prayers are continuing to be with those who deal with this. And we want to remind you again just to, hey, wash your hands, right? Wear your mask, don't cough on people, put your cats away when people come to visit, all of those things that help with the virus. Just be smart, and we look forward to, again, being back together. Until that time, have a great week, and live as if you are certain for your home of the soul. Thanks so much, everybody.